Democratic Socialists of America has come on leaps and bounds in the past five years, with unprecedented growth spurred on by two Bernie Sanders presidential campaigns, taking the organisation to well over 90,000 members. In 2021, DSA will hold its national convention and adopt a new political platform. But where does the organisation go next, tactically, strategically, organisationally? What sort of politics will DSA advocate in the coming years? I'm Edmund Potts, and together with my comrade Chris Strafford from the Prometheus Editorial Board, we spoke to two of our comrades, Parker McQueenie and Alexander Gallus, who are both involved with the Marxist Unity Slate, which has put forward some important resolutions to this year's DSA convention. We hope you enjoy our discussion with them as much as we did, and that you read more about their proposals online at marxistunity.com. All right then, so Parker, what is the state of the DSA at the moment? You know, what, what is it really happening with the DSA after Bernie Sanders, but more importantly, after the fall of Trump, you know, in the Biden uh, administration coming to power? Where, where are the DSA at now? Um, that's a good question. I'm not sure that DSA even quite knows where it's at right now. Um, certainly the first Bernie Sanders campaign was kind of the um, catalyst for a, you know, the, the beginnings of a revived socialist movement in the U.S., um, including, you know, DSA as a, as a regroupment of the left. Like, you know, you see a lot of, um, it's interesting, I don't know how, how it is in the U.K., it might be similar, but you see a lot of people who were involved in the new left, um, and also a lot of, you know, mostly millennials um, and some younger, so it's kind of this uh, dual generational aspect with, with, you know, with the middle section not quite there because of the, uh, you know, the historical points in which the left was strong. Um, so certainly the, the Bernie Sanders thing was a um, uniting force for DSA, both in 2016. And, well, I guess, you know, DSA didn't really blow up until 2017, but it was the catalyst in 2017 and also the uniting force in 2020. So of course we all know what happened with Bernie. Um, it was demoralizing for, for DSA, I think. Um, and there was a wing of DSA that was saying that we should uh, support the Biden campaign. Um, but I would say that the vast majority was against that and those people you know, lost that fight. Um, although they may have, you know, individually campaigned for Biden. Um, as far as what's, you know, what's going on, what's, what's the next move for DSA, I think a lot of people don't really know. And that's part of our intervention is trying to unite us around, you know, a platform, a program that we can, you know, you know a vision of the working class actually coming to power, what that would look like, what it would take. Yeah, that sounds uh, yeah similar to some of the stuff that we've gone through a couple of times in uh, the last couple of decades. Obviously, most recently with momentum, um, where you have you know that big gap in uh, in the left that um, you know where the left was defeated or non-existent basically in public life. You know that whole generation has uh, has gone missing for, for, for you know. From, from the political scene. So you had like, uh, obviously the, the old left in uh, momentum, um, you know, the 14, the 60s and 70s came out of the battles of militant, came out of uh, all the stuff um, in, with Liverpool Labour Party and what have you. 
then you have like these new younger millennials and now I presume Zoomers and what have you. And uh, Ed was uh, Ed was a, a central figure in, in 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 that fight actually, because it was a clash between those those um, those two backgrounds really um, and, and views and how to advance um, socialist politics in Britain. That's that's just just to interrupt you. That's quite interesting because you know I, t I brought up the whole Biden thing. It was there was a letter in the Nation, which is kind of like a liberal left magazine in the U.S. That um, it was a bunch of people who signed the who were part of the SDS, the Students for Democratic Society, in in the '60s, which was basically the DSA of its day. And they were you know chastising the younger generation of socialists for for they compare they compared us to. Um, the third period Stalinists actually in in our sectarianism for not uniting behind the uh, liberal candidate to stop fascism it was kind of kind of funny in that respect. But one thing I did forget to mention is, um, you know, DSA's um, how it operates within the labor movement, which I think is a uniting factor that hasn't been defeated quite yet. Um, right now, there's a bill in the House of Representatives that would basically overturn the what's known as right to work, uh, yep. which is, you know, particular states in the US uh, have all these bans on organizing uh, union that they prevents you from having solidarity strikes, sit down strikes, all these things. Um, and, and so there's a national campaign right now to get behind the PRO Act. Um, you know, I, I'm kind of cynical about its chances in the Senate um, but I do know that DSA has in a large part adopted this thing called the rank and file strategy, which is, comes from Kim Moody, but also, you know, the, um, the independent socialist tradition, the, uh, the post, uh, you know, Hal Draper, um, third camp Trotskyist, uh, thing that, um, has been, I think it's, it's seen some success in certain areas, um, but then again, there are factions within DSA that want to uh, adopt some different labor strategy. But but as of right now, the rank and file strategy of uh, adopting uh, or, or trying to build rank and file reform caucuses in the official unions is kind of the the general strategy of DSA and has united it to an extent. Mm. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? The different terrain that that we're kind of fighting on. You know, having been through, I guess, some some common experiences, but then, uh, the, I I would say I would characterize the weakness of the the unions in in the UK as being mostly, you know, just a sort of a, a decline in strength. You know, and and having suffered some key defeats, obviously most notably the miners' strike, which have just left them very hollowed out. Um, and, and the bureaucratization has, has kind of built up just to, um, to to sort of paper over the cracks in a sense. But I, I guess in many American unions, you've got a lot more uh, real kind of distortions of, of working class representation, haven't you? You know, with uh, just kind of open and naked corruption of various, various kinds, which I would say is probably less of a factor here, even though the unions aren't very democratic um, here. Uh, the, the, there's probably, in a sense, less degeneration to deal with, but that's just my take on it. Yeah, I mean, you know, America is kind of the the ground zero for for all this kind of stuff, right? For all the reactionary and you know, neoliberal uh, policies, etc. Um, 
and the fact that we don't we don't even have a labor party right we have the democrats which is a you know a bourgeois a bourgeois party outright um that the unions are kind of beholden to unfortunately but you know the this i don't re, i'm kind of agnostic on what our la labor strategy should be but it is worth saying that the teamsters which is a huge union in the united states did the, the reform caucus there which had a which was filled with Trotskyists in the leadership, um, did have success in the 90s. They, they, they won leadership of the Teamsters and then initiated this huge UPS strike in 1999, which is one of the, one of the biggest strikes in, in the US history. Um, and that was defeated as well. But you know, we have some beautiful defeats in both, both this country and the UK, I think. Oh yeah, we love those beautiful defeats, you know, just on the anniversary of the commune as well. Well, we were talking about generational stuff, and when you were talking about the, the the open letter of former SDS members, which are you know I was kind of aware of, I, I kind of read some of that. And what's interesting, I thought it in in the Corbyn movement was that, um, as Chris mentioned, you know there were demographic gaps where you you had you know a, a layer of older members who had been effectively carrying the torch, um, and and quite often hiding out in the only. Uh, organizations and redoubts that were open to, to socialists at the time. So, you know, various uh, left-wing sects, you know, Trotskyist groups or, or this or that union or, or, or whatever. Um, and then there was just nothing. Uh, you know, there were there were virtually no people like in their uh, 30s and 40s uh, because things had been so dire. Um, but in a sense, and, and, and I wouldn't really characterize it as a a sort of left-right split, but there was a definite sort of old left, new left split, um, and that was reflected in terms of people's priorities, in terms of the issues they wanted to campaign on. You know, the the older generations very much had a sort of specific set of priorities. Obviously, a big one that you know has has a lot of people's attention has been Israel Palestine, which is a a sort of mainstay of British left-wing campaigning that. You know, I, I think a lot of younger activists just haven't really been very interested in for quite a long time. And, and of course, that took on a whole new significance with the, you know, the sort of anti-Semitism scandal within the Labour Party. So that's that's kind of the way that it's played out here. And, and obviously, to a certain extent, I suppose the, the question is, to what extent does the left, um, as now obviously principally characterised, principally represented rather by the DSA, to what extent does that really represent the working class in America? To what extent would the working class see its experiences played out in, in this regroupment of the left that's coming about? How relevant is it to, to working class people? Are they aware of what's going on? Yeah, I mean, you know, I think we're talking about generational divides and generational differences, um, if we're talking about the SDS, right, in the 1960s and 70s, um, the big thing at the time was the Vietnam War, right? And people mobilized in the 1960s and 70s, uh, especially against the Vietnam War. And once that collapsed, once the draft was, you know, dropped and there was no more draft and the Vietnam War came to a close, that movement, you know, petered out significantly, right? Um, the difference is nowadays we have a society in the United States where, you know, um, the amount of inequality is enormous, growing. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I hate to say, it, but, you know, the fact is 
that um, many middle-class white people in America nowadays, younger people, are doing worse than their parents before, right? And so I think that the, that the potential um, is way greater nowadays, of course, compared to back then, um, but it's still small, I would say. The amount of people that are involved in DSA is, you know, almost 100,000. Um, there's a great cultural influence, like we've written in the Marxist Unity Slate, but it doesn't transfer into actual political power, right? That DSA or the left really have. And that's kind of the issue that we're trying to tackle right now with the Marxist Unity Slate, right? That we transfer that, that, that cultural, uh, that enormous cultural resonance that the DSA does indeed have, right? And that socialism in general has in the United States. I mean, the majority of millennials and Zoomers, they, uh, they prefer socialism over capitalism. If you look at polls, right? Um, of course, older boomers do not, but uh, uh, definitely younger people do. So, I mean, maybe in 10 or 20 years from now, we're going to be sitting in a very different situation. But until we um, see that really mass resonance and that mass, you know, mass um, force, right, uh, entrenched in a working population. Um, it's going to be a, a continued battle to try to actually form that kind of a mass base. Yeah, just just to add on to that, you know, I, I do want to clarify, you know, when I was talking about the the generational divide politically, that's that's a generalization, right? You know, most uh, you know people who are involved in the new left, like Alex said, they really did take a heroic stance against the Vietnam War. That and, and you hear a lot of people say like, oh, well, it had no effect. But no, they got they got Nixon to admit that he had illegally bombed Cambodia. They they start they did have a mass movement, um, and also with you know civil rights. So you know I have a lot of respect for my for my older comrades and and even the ones who I think have you know kind of opportunistic politics. You know they they lived through three three decades that was probably the the most um, you know defeated and pessimistic time for the workers movement, you know, ever really, um, with the fall of the Soviet Union, which even had drastic negative effects on Trotskyist parties and, and such, and just was really um, had boosted the reactionary turn in capitalism towards neoliberalism that so much that it was kind of a, a worldwide counter revolutionary uh, wave. Um, so, you know, I have a great understanding for why uh, some of the older comrades ha have these positions, um, and some of them don't. We have, you know, older members of DSA who are part of its left wing. Um, as far as the question of how much does DSA represent the working class, um, I think that, uh, us at Marxist Unity are influenced by this idea of what's called the merger formula. You know, where um, you've, you've probably talked about this on Prometheus before, I imagine, because you know we we sh we share a great deal in common politically. Um, but, you know, the idea that the, so the socialist intellectuals are kind of the preliminary uh, stages of the socialist movement, but what it needs is to have a full democratic merger with the, uh, the proletariat as a class, um, not so that the intellectuals can take uh, ownership of the movement and become its, you know, general staff of the revolution or whatever, but so that each side can transform each other in a, and I'm going to use the the big buzzword here in a dialectical manner, right? Um, so in the U.S., you know, we uh, we have a little bit 
of a different history than in Britain where, you know, despite the weakness of the socialist movement, it's, it's kind of always been there. You know, you've, you've always had a, a, at least a reformist socialist left in the Labour Party in the, in the 70s and 80s with what Tony Benn in um, the Socialist cam Campaign Group and the, and the Tribune Group, et cetera. And, you know, various Trotskyist groups that militant, you know, taking over the Liverpool um, City Council or whatever. In the US, socialism was such a dirty word um, in the period of the Cold War and beyond that it was just like, you know, after, after the Soviet Union fell, um, it was not you, it was a huge taboo, really. And I'm sure that's true in, to some extent in in British society as well, but I think it was probably more more of a thing in the U.S. So, really, a hundred thousand people in DSA. It's actually something like ninety-two thousand right now, but I hope within the next few weeks we'll hit a hundred thousand, maybe maybe a month or two. A um, hundred thousand people in, in in you know uh, in the context of three hundred sixty million Americans is not a huge amount, but in the context of the American left, it is kind of a, a miracle in a way that uh, the socialist left has um, been reborn. And, and I think there's a lot of problems with the politics of the DSA and it's a lot of, you know, it, but, but, but it, we have to realize it's a movement in its infancy. And I, I'm really heartened by the idea that there are socialists from all different tendencies that were of the 20th century, you know, regrouping into um, a, a larger project. And we do have to um, merge with the working, the lower rungs of the working class, right? You know, there's this huge debate now about the PMC, prof professional managerial, you know, I think, I happen to think that that's probably, you know, a good way to think of that is just a stratum within the working class. But like Alex said, we the 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 middle class millennials, you know, the the the, the sons and daughters of of middle class people are kind of D class A, and that historically is always the base for uh, a burgeoning socialist movement. So yeah, of course, of course, we have to you know win over uh, the working class, the the bottom layers of the working class in a major way. Like Lenin said, po politics start in the millions, right? And that's part of why we at Marxist Unity don't want to discount um, political struggle, by which we mean electoral struggle. You know, there's this huge idea in the left that anytime you um, encounter electoral politics, it's just reformist down the line. And I, I do think that the way the DSA does do electoral politics right now is opportunistic. But if we look historically, there are very principled ways that Marxists have always engaged in electoral politics from Marx, Engels, Second International, Lenin and the Bolsheviks even. Um, and if we study those, like, you know, many of us in Marxist unity have been, have been doing, we, I think that gives us a really good strategy for how to, how to engage in electoral politics today. Yeah, I mean, not the fact that uh, Comrade's taking a, a long view, a long-term view of uh building the DSA and regrouping, you know, is, you know, is really positive. Um, you know, the recent experiences in, in Britain, and I, I presume in lots of other countries as well, has been, you know, we have to get everything sorted very quickly. And if we're not making an impact very quickly, then, you know, we're clearly doing something wrong. You know, and, um, 100,000, you know, signed up socialists in a single organisation, 
you know, soon to have a national platform, you know, which we'll, we will have a chat about in a bit, you know, is, is, a, is, is a really good milestone for, you know, forging something new um, and forging independent culture, which really brings us on to where does the Marxist unity slate come from? Why have you formed it now? Um, you know, does it have a wide degree of support or, you know, or are you still fighting to, to, to win that support? Um, Alexander, do you want to have a go at answering that one first? Sure. I mean, um, basically, Marxist Unity started definitely at the initiative of Parker, so it's probably best that he follows mm. up on this as well. But um, I mean, most of us here, you know, who who came into the Marxist Unity slate, um, we came from Cosmonaut and were editors at Cosmonaut, as we have in the, in the disclaimer on the website. But um, yeah, Parker, do you want to go on and talk about uh, the background exactly, how it started? Yeah, well, um, I think like Prometheus, you know, uh, several of the founders of Cosmonaut, not, not everyone, but several of us are really influenced by the politics of the weekly worker of uh, specifically Mike McNair's book, Revolutionary Strategy. Um, and I have been a member for of DSA for four years now since the initial um, boom in 2017. And Me too. I, oh yeah, nice. I, th I think some other, you know, people in Marxist unity and cosmonaut weren't, you know, quite convinced yet that DSA was where we should um, organize. Um, and I guess we were mostly trying to focus on building the publication of cosmonaut to, to you know, be broadly um, a broad space for the Marxist left to to publish their views and host debates within within the US left, um, including, you know, views outside our own. Um, so since we're like an all volunteer operation, you know, it takes a lot of time and energy to do that. And I think a lot of us didn't really have time to do DSA on top of that. Right. But, you know, we all knew that we had these really kind of um, specific vision of political strategy for the socialist movement that we all agreed on. Um, and we had been wanting to, to uh, make an intervention in DSA for a while, uh, as, as well as make an intervention in the whole of the US left. Um, so I, I believe in the 2017 convention of DSA, which is really when um, the younger left, the Jacobin people specifically um, got into leadership of DSA and it started, you know, it, it really changed from the old um, Michael Harrington politics of um, realigning the Democratic Party. That 2017 convention is really where that all started. Um, I believe there was a few of us, not, not me, but, um, you know, members of Marxist Unity who did form a group called Spark to promote these kind of orthodox Marxist politics, you know, the politics of the um, revolutionary strategy book. And I guess four years later, we wanted to reform something like that and not, not as a huge, you know, nat nationwide caucus that anyone who agrees with us can join and we're going to tell everyone how to vote on every single resolution at the convention, but rather to put a very short platform out of uh, or, or slate of resolutions um, that anyone who considers themselves a Marxist in DSA, whether or not they're already associated with a different faction, um, can get behind. And we're right now we're trying to win the support of the other of the other factions. Um, 
And I, I think that's possible because, you know, the principles we're putting forward are one, um, having the platform, regardless of what ends up being on it, be the basis of membership so that it actually, so that that document just doesn't, you know, go up on the website and then mean nothing so that it actually is the vision that unites every single DSA member uh, towards the working class coming to power and forming essentially a dictatorship of the, of the proletariat, right? And um, secondly, uh, shit, I kind of lost my train of thought. <laughs> yeah, secondly, what... secondly, we'd, um, you know, we'd advocate for obviously right. discipline of, of representatives in Congress and so on who are DSA members and so on. Thank you, Alex. I haven't had my second cup of coffee finished yet. <laughs> but it is going to be a fight, right? I mean, we're definitely at the starting stages. I mean, we've only been doing this now for, what, a month, a month and a half now, Parker? And uh, but, but I think it's really given us a new wind. It's given us energy to get more involved, all of us as individuals locally, and to, and to look forward to more debate and to pursue debate and to pursue linking up with other caucuses within DSA to to you know actually develop a, a, an organization I won't say party but an organization with more discipline and and with more independence right yeah yeah and just to answer your question about you know are we a major faction we're not a major fact we're a small group of people you know but we do have a um a growing circle of supporters you know it, uh, we have over 100 signatures on all our platforms and We've had a lot of positive um, feedback from the other caucuses. So it's my hope that we can kind of form a bigger block um, at the convention to get behind a, um, a Marxist vision of DSA turning into an independent working class socialist party. I wanted to digress uh, slightly because it's something that I, I was just thinking about while you while you were speaking, which is that uh, in 2013, Chris and I were involved in a new party that was established in the UK called Left Unity, um, which didn't go anywhere, unfortunately, you know, really died a death. Uh, it was obviously founded, you know, just a short while before Corbynism emerged um, and, and so was a was a victim of you know, historical circumstance, among other things. But in in the run-up to its founding conference, uh, there was a, a debate over adopting a platform uh, for it, and, uh, and we were involved in drafting and putting forward the socialist platform, which was a basic kind of 10-point statement of Marxist politics. And uh, I won't go into it all now, obviously, because it's, it's water under the bridge. But um, what I thought was interesting was that in response to it, you had many, many people who had a long history of left-wing activism, uh, you know, had been in organisations, uh, you know, Marxist organisations in the past, uh, and their response was effectively, well, look, you know, of course I agree with all the 10 points in here, right? You know, I mean, how could anyone disagree with that if they're a socialist? But, you know, if we adopt this and if we have this as the, the platform for left unity, then we'll be putting people off will be putting people off who aren't there yet. Uh, people won't understand it. It's it's too hard. It, it, it's too firm. Um, and, and so in, instead they adopted something that was a lot more woolly and, uh, and vague and tried to kind of please everyone and, uh, and, and use kind of vague phrases. And I was just wondering if you if you've experienced that sort of reaction from 
uh, comrades who should know better, um, or if you're anticipating that sort of reaction, uh, and, and if so, how you respond to that charge that, you know, you, well, you, you, you might frighten people away uh, who, whose politics aren't that developed yet. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a f absolutely fundamental problem in the US left, too. Um, you know, I, and I think one way this expresses itself is when we talk about, you know, when people in DSA talk about, you know, the eventual need for a, a party, what kind of party we're talking about, right? And what's the goal for that party? Um, I think a lot of the mainstream view in DSA is that we need to build a labor party like the one in the UK. Um, and that, you know, we need to build coalitions with these other various, you know, groups that came out of the wake of Bernie Sanders, um, like Our Revolution, who aims to take over various Democratic parties, a group called Justice Democrats, who runs people like, AO they're really the ones behind people like AOC, um, primarying the right-wing Democrats, um, and, 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 and the labor, mo labor movement more, more broadly. Um, and I think that's a fundamental mistake, you know, because the goal for us should not be to um, build a broad progressive movement that can take over the government. Um, what we should do is build a socialist party with firm Marxist stances. And, you know, I don't like, you know, using this term, but becoming a militant minority, really, and um, being the best opposition we can be, even if it's a small opposition, um, and building from there with our Marxist principles. Yeah, I mean, I would add on to that, right, that we definitely do anticipate those arguments, um, to see those arguments being made, right, uh, in opposition to um, trying to establish actual Marxist politics and, and open principles, right, open Marxist politics. Um, but, but, you know, the argument against that, I think, would be that, um, DSA has now uh, for three years um, pursued a kind of strategy of trying to um, work within the Democratic Party to gain reforms, right? Uh, but that has not been successful. I mean, uh, one could argue that maybe it's a matter of, of size, perhaps, but I really would argue that at this point, because Biden did win the nomination to the presidency, and presidency, and he did become president, that it's going to be, what are we going to do for the next four to eight years? Um, because there is a, 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 a popular rebellious, you know, atmosphere in the United States, and people are suffering in the United States. I mean, you know, healthcare, 50,000 people die each year because they do not have health, health insurance, right? Um, we have people working for $8 an hour or even less because the federal minimum wage is so low. Um, and these are all things that have not been mitigated. You know? And uh, the prospects of them being mitigated, uh, also when you're looking at climate change, are somewhat slim. You know, The, the Biden administration doesn't show much promise to, to actually change that. So I think that, uh, that uh, arguments currently against actually establishing an open Marxist and a more radical politics in the USA uh, are in this moment quite weak. They're on the back foot. Well, that's excellent. I mean, that's uh, uh, that's music to our ears um, and, and all power to you. Um, I, I wanted to just uh, go back to something that you, you, you touched on, Alexander, about um, 
exerting some control and discipline over elected representatives and, and people who stand for office on a DSA ticket, effectively, you know, w whatever ballot line they may run on, but if they're endorsed by DSA. Now, obviously, this relates to the first of your resolutions, Tribunes of the People and Democratic Discipline. We've all read, I think, um, August Nimtz's fantastic books on uh, how the Bolsheviks did electoral work and, and the the way in which um, Lenin and the Bolsheviks approached not only election campaigns, but also then parliamentary work once uh, once they had people elected uh, into the state Duma, the, the assembly. I was rereading some of it the other day and it was saying, you know, Lenin would sit down and write the Duma representatives' speeches for them to ensure their quality and then, you know, they would deliver the speeches in, in the Duma and then that would be reported in the Bolshevik press and, and, and so on. And I was just wondering what you think about how much cohesion, how much control can actually be exerted in the modern kind of day and age where elected representatives typically have a very high media profile or can at least, you know, have the opportunity to build one via social media, you know, an active presence on Twitter, uh, you know, the obvious example being AOC. How, how much can we, you know, a socialist organisation like DSA ensure that, that these people conform to the politics of DSA and represent its membership when they're far more active on a, you know, day-to-day -day or even minute-to-minute -minute basis? Uh, and it's more than just, say, writing a speech for them every week. Yeah, um, I'm really glad you brought up the uh, August Nymphs book because, um, you know, I read that this year and another member of Marxist Unity, Peter, and I uh, had the pleasure of interviewing August Nymphs on, on that. And, you know, that was definitely, I, I, I wrote the proposal that you just brought up, the Tribunes of the People one, and that was definitely weighing on my mind, um, as well as the book that um, Ben Lewis uh, wrote and translated of Karl Kautsky on Republicanism and Democracy, which uh, Alex and I interviewed, but also you guys interviewed Ben and did a, did an episode on that. So those those two um, historical documents were very um, enlightening for me um, in that in that sense. Um, as far as how much capacity do, does DSA have right now to do something like that, um, I don't think it does. Um, but that's why we're pushing, you know, trying to open the conversation about what democratic centralism actually means when you emphasize that the democratic aspect of the formula. And for us, you know, me particularly, I'm really influenced by this kind of um, uh, civic Republican uh, political philosophy that is really all about, um, you know, making sure that, uh, first of all, any sort of arbitrary uh, domination is is done away with and we rationalize all these things so that, you know, for example, when DSA does endorse someone, our national political committee does have a check on them um, in a way that's, you know, the NPC is actually elected by the rank and file. So um, I think to achieve something like this, we would have to really professionalize DSA. Um, at the last convention, there was this huge debate um, there was kind of an, what I would call an anarcho-liberal wing that wanted to abolish all dues, et cetera, um, which I've, I'm glad that they essentially lost every, every one of their major proposals. Um, but, um, you know, I, I think, you know, having regular monthly dues be a part of the organization, hiring more staff that's 
not necessarily in political roles, but is able to uh, keep up with administrative work um, and really run DSA as a national organization. Um, I've been part of the platform drafting process, and it's the first time I've really been involved in the national DSA, other than being a delegate at the convention in 2019. And I've really been able to see firsthand that, you know, like I said, uh, we're a movement in our infancy, and the National Political Committee works really hard as, you know, volunteers, uh, just like any other member of DSA. Um, and I think it's kind of different than this, the old approach of the sex where, you know, you have this leadership that's entrenched and, you know, maybe even paid a salary um, and you pay one or two people in your tiny sect and they keep it running as full-time, you know, quote unquote, professional revolutionaries. You know, I think we, we need to find some sort of balance where um, we are professionalized at the national level. So we do have this capability, but yeah, I do see, you know, um, Part of our proposal is the, um, you know, each member we endorse has to, each politician we endorse has to accept the program, become a member. When they hire staff, they have, their staff has to do the same, accept the program and become a member. Um, and we ask them to use the platform as a, um, you know, a, as an agitational thing where, where they base their, their political agitation on. Um, and, you know, I don't know how, you know, how possible it is that we are going to pass all our resolutions at the next convention, but I think it's really important that we um, express these ideas to DSA members who might not have thought about something like that before. Um, and we have, this is the part, this is the part that has had the most like negative reaction to. I think people are really um, have this idea that if we run, like our engagement in electoral politics should be to win and it's a waste of resources if we run, run in elections that we have no chance of winning. And, and people are saying, we, we don't have the capacity to do this, X, Y, Z. And I think that there's you know this kind of opportunistic engagement with electoral politics where we just kind of throw our hat in with someone who's progressive and maybe even well-meaning and considers themselves socialist, but not um, under the discipline of the socialist movement. Um, you know, is is tempting for a lot of DSA. And I think we need to really have that conversation and how we can change that and be have have a politics that um, brings forth what what we like to call, you know, tribunes of the people. Yeah, that's super interesting because you we have the same arguments here as well, you know, all rolling behind Labour because we're never going to get elected as a communist or what have you. You know, the winning that extreme opposition that independent politics for for the dsa would be such a big win you know even partially i, I, I remember when you the dsa won um not backing anyone else but sanders and how much of that was you know the venom and everything else that was online you know the people that were 40 years ago in the weather underground but now right for the new york times you know we're all up in arms you know and you know, i thought you know this, this is a good start you know the right people are upset about this you know, where you, you, you're beginning to stop um, people building their own little fiefdoms and their own little um, support bases based on who they employ, you know, and their personality, their their prestige in the movement, what have you. You know, you want to build a movement that is, uh, you know, fighting for an actual program that, um, you know, has delegates, has legislators, has activists that, you know, 
you know, we're all accountable to each other. You know, you don't, you're not just relying on AOC or Bernie Sanders or Jeremy Corbyn or whoever, you know, it's um, exactly kind yeah. of when you, you've, you've got to, you got to really go for. Um, and I do want to add real quick that, um, you know, with that, that resolution at the last convention, the, the Bernie, the known as the Bernie or bust resolution, where yeah. the only democratic candidate we're going to endorse or support in the election is, is Bernie. That passed, I just want to be clear, that passed with a clear majority. It was, there was almost no question um, about it. And the people who ended up saying, no, we need to, you know, we need to stop fascism. We need to um, get behind Biden. There were a significant minority, like a small minority of voices within DSA. And you have like the sectarian left, you know, outside of DSA when, when that happened, you know, being like, oh, look at, look at all these people, you know, DSA is opportunists, they're, they're just Democrats, et cetera, et cetera. You know, it's a little more complicated than that because, you know, I think there is a clear class line in DSA. It's just the strategy isn't necessarily there yet. Um, and that's why I say every socialist in the US should become a member of DSA and fight for a revolutionary Marxist platform and strategy. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> Speak with one voice, the editorial board. Yeah. Um, I just wanted to uh, touch on one thing before we, uh, before I let uh, Chris come in with uh, with some questions, uh, which is that the sanction uh, at the end of this uh, proposal for, for tribunes of the people, um, the, the, the sanction for not abiding by the requirements is, is suspension from, from DSA membership and a revocation of the endorsement for that candidate by the NPC, which is DSA's leading body, right? Um, or, or, or its sort of elected body. Um, and I just wanted to float uh, something that, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but I, I'm, it's my understanding that AOC was a member of DSA and then pretty much severed ties with DSA upon getting elected. And and so uh, I, I just want to explore as an idea that maybe being suspended from DSA membership uh, once you've, you know, got elected into office is not really a, a sanction that, you know, someone is going to cry about that much. Um, and, it, and it calls to mind, I think, to, to me, the fact that some communist parties used to uh, do a thing where they're, they're members of parliament um, were obliged to hand in signed but undated letters of re resignation to the to the party leadership, and so then if you know if they breached party discipline, well then uh, the 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 central committee or what have you would would send in the letters of resignation to the assembly, which you know I I know obviously sounds a bit um, extreme in some quarters, but I but I think it actually illustrates you know a really good. Um, principle and shows exactly the right sort of uh, of hierarchy there uh, and, and accountability. I don't know what the process is for actually resigning, say, as a, a as a member of Congress. It's, it might be some arcane procedure that can't be done with a letter. Um, but yeah, I was just wondering if if any other sanctions were were possible or desirable in your opinion. Yeah, I mean, I think that uh, that definitely something to think about, right? Um, I think with the intention of writing this, you know, what we're, what we're looking at as well, however, is that we're trying to, you know, encourage the independent capacity of DSA as well to run their own elections, right? And that's something that that is a process that's going to take time. 
but uh, that's certainly an interesting idea you brought up. Yeah, I just I just want to clarify a little bit with the, with the AOC thing. You know, it's probably a game of telephone across the pond, right? You know, um, the problem is that you know with with DSA membership and being endorsed by DSA, we don't have any requirements after the after getting elected. You know, and pe most people in DSA love AOC. Um, and I would say it's not quite correct that, you know, she severed ties or, or something, um, but rather that we don't have any kind of institutional structures to keep um, our, you know, socialist legislators um, involved in DSA. And uh, I don't blame AOC for, you know, her opportunistic, you know, outlook and, and strategy you know i i actually blame the socialist movement I, I blame dsa for not you know instituting something like that um you know she was a bartender in new york you know like 28 years old or something like that you know brand new to the socialist movement you know she was you know became a socialist because of the bernie sanders campaign in 2016 so i you know i don't blame her i i blame the you know us um and it's on us to institute something like that and i think certain dsa chapters have um, gone gone towards that um, in their you know state legislatures and city councils. Um, I know that DSA in Chicago um, censured uh, one candidate that they helped get elected um, because he ended up supporting some sort of um, austerity measures for housing. Um, and you know I think you're right that you know censuring and you know withdrawing withdrawing endorsement and you know quitting membership is largely a symbolic thing that, you know, isn't going to punish the representative all that much, but we have to do what we can, right? Um, and even a symbolic symbolic threat, um, I think is worthwhile, you know, and I, I think right now we have such a, a big task of convincing DSA in general on the idea of you know, putting forward candidates that we can discipline and, and to be tribunes of the people rather than to, um, you know, work in coalition with Democrats to pass reforms um, that I probably wouldn't, uh, you know, go with the, you know, hand over your resig resignation letter right now, um, you know, maybe in the future, but, but I think, I think the idea of censure and um, withdrawal of endorsement is as a symbolic measure, significant enough, um, and with in combination with us actually promoting people who are committed socialists and committed to the program, right? Because if someone's committed to the program and we actually do start having um, people in legislatures that caucus with each other, like they do have in the New York DSA, on the New York state legislature, um, and who don't caucus with the rest of the Democrats and who form an independent voice um, and who are committed to uh, building socialism, I think, you know, I, I think that's a kind of a cultural shift within the organization, you know, and, and, and that's what we have to push for. Um, you know, maybe someday we can ask them for their resignation letters uh, beforehand. <laughs> it's not a bad idea. What if you could tell me a bit more about all the factions in, in DSA? You know, who they are, what do they want, like super briefly, because to us here, I mean, it, you, have, you have so many. And it, it is a good thing, um, but you know, for you know our primary British audience, you know, we may know about bread and roses. Um, 
Yeah, yeah. We made you about you guys and the Communist Caucus, but then you got all these others as well, Collective Power Network, you know, Reform and Revolution. Who's the who's the movers and shakers and who's gonna support your uh who's yeah, gonna definitely. support your slate? Yeah, I think a, a broad overview of the of the you know different factions in DSA and the broad, you know, strategies is, is a good thing to do for a British audience. Um, and you know, maybe this would even help put what we said before in context. So starting in 2017, like I said, the Jacobin people had been involved in DSA for a while. They were known as the Left Caucus back then. DSA was mostly an organization following the politics of Michael Harrington, who was a um, you know, democratic socialist from the 70s. He wrote this book on um, poverty in America that became really well known. Um, and you know, he claims to have even influenced um, President uh, Lyndon B. Johnson in his, um, you know, welfare reform stuff. Um, but the the politics of Michael Harrington was to push for a labor realignment within the Democratic Party to make the Democratic Party a party of social democracy um, and of labor. It was, you know, kind of a Fabian, maybe uh, similar to the, the politics of the Fabians. Um, and, you know, you have this tradition of followers of Michael Harrington in DSA. Um, and of course, in the 1970s, what happened was neoliberalism came, the complete opposite of what he wanted to see happen. Um, and so at the 2017 convention, after, you know, the whole Bernie thing had kicked off, um, the Jacobin people, you know, I'm speaking broadly, I'm, I don't exactly, you know, maybe some people involved in Jacobin and some people in their circles, you know, um, I believe they got a majority on the MPC or something or or won resolutions in favor of, first of all, um, divesting from Israel uh, in support of uh, BDS, which was a big thing because a lot of um, Michael Harrington's followers were kind of um, pro-Zionist uh, social Democrats because there, you know, there's a history of pro-Zionist social democracy in the US around the magazine uh, dissent, I think. Um, and so, you know, that's when it really became a, a socialist organization. Like, I, would, I would say, you know, really a socialist organization then. Um, and so the, the Jacobin style po politics of democratic socialism that's influenced by, um, like I said earlier, the Kim Moody rank and file, but also, um, you know, Ralph Miliband and maybe like left Euro communism uh, has been hegemonic in DSA, um, and they want to see a, a, a left-wing party of some sort emerge out of the Bernie Sanders movement, um, whether that's a labor party or a kind of European left populist style party or a socialist party, a proper Marxist party is um, vague. Um, and so around that time, the the narrative, the, the narrative shifted between, you know, a struggle between these ideas of realignment of the Democrats and what's called the dirty break, which was formulated by Eric Blanc, who's a member of Bread and Roses, which came out of the former left caucus. Um, so the dirty break is this idea that will elect people like AOC and eventually will get enough that they'll um, split with the Democrats um, and form this new party. Um, the problem is from what I've seen with most of of, of the dirty break people is that um, it's really a holiday speechifying kind of thing 
where they are kicking the can down the road. They don't have any specifics on when, how, or why the break happens, or even if AOC knows that she's supposed to break, you know? Um, so what, what we want to do is kind of heighten that contradiction between the idea of the, of breaking with the democratic party and when we're actually going to do it. And there are other factions who have independently come to this idea. Uh, Reform and Revolution is hosting an event called Putting the Break in the Dirty Break um, next Sunday. Um, they're a, they, they were formerly members of Socialist Alternative, which was uh, the part of the CWI, you know, before the Peter Taft split and all that junk. Um, and um, let's see. So the, I, I would say the major factions now are still basically Bread and Roses is the only faction that has a real national presence um, and hegemony within DSA. At the last convention in 2019, I mentioned, you know, the anarcho-liberals, although maybe that's not fair. Some of them were more, you know, Maoist influenced and, and left anarchists. Um, but they were fighting for a kind of decentralization of the organization. Um, they were fighting for uh, defunding the national uh, structure um, and giving all the money, or at least a, a big chunk of the money to chapters to kind of experiment in on the ground organizing. And they're influenced by the, uh, the base building uh, politics. But it seems to me that you know, that they, they had elected a minority of the NPC, the National Political Committee, and they had, uh, all, all of their members had have resigned with, you know, over the last two years. Um, so it seems to me that this, this group, which was called BUILD, is no longer really a factor in DSA. Um, but, you know, there's, I, I would say right now, the, the main struggle is between this idea of the dirty break and anything else, which, you know, there's this idea of the party surrogate, which is embraced by uh, a group called uh, CPN, Collective Power Network, which might end up being the biggest non-Bread and Roses faction at the next convention. Um, they're, they're opposed to the rank and file strategy, but it's not really clear why or what they have in, in response to that. Um, and they are opposed to, you know, breaking with the Democrats and saying that we should kind of have an indefinite party within a party. Um, so I would say right now, the main question is, what does the dirty break mean? And how do we actually commit ourselves to a break? And are we really committing ourselves to a break or not? Um, so really, it's between bread and roses and whoever else is going to, um, you know, come up with something different. Right, right. I'd, I'd agree with, uh, with Parker that the, um, the hegemonic politics in DSA are um, Euro-communist, right? Um, and, and the fact is that the traditional strategy of realignment uh, within the uh, Democratic Party is definitely in a minority. Um, it's quite rare that you encounter people who, who uh, articulate that strategy still, right? Which is a, a very positive sign, right? Um, but there's unfortunately a lot of vagueness about what exactly the dirty break means, right? So maybe if your audience in England feels confused about, you know, uh, the theory of the dirty break, well, you know, we're not more enlightened either over here on this side of the, of the Atlantic. Um, but yeah, and I, I do feel like, you know, with the, um, 
with a draft program that's been published, for instance, right? Uh, that kind of um, uncertain or, or, or vague politics has been um, has been articulated a little bit and is represented by that kind of a structure of the uh, short, medium, and long-term demands, right? And it and it kind of contrasts with the more traditional Orthodox Marxist minimum maximum program in terms of the fact that uh, it leaves room for a middle ground. It doesn't. It doesn't. It leaves room for for the um, for the possibility of socialists and the DSA future representatives to participate in government, right? That is not very clearly, uh, very clearly defined. And it leaves room for not making a clear break with the, with the, with the coercive institutions of capitalism in the United States. And, you know, with us participating or not participating in that, in that state system, right? But, uh, uh, like anything else, you know, uh, if you look at other parties historically, SPD, SBA, or whatever, there are different factions within parties, and there are different different attitudes, right? Um, I would I would say that our vision at Marxist Unity is definitely to attempt to create a mass communist party, right, and to articulate that as well. And and there is a lot of language in the uh, in the new platform, the the draft program. Uh, that is reassuring in that direction, right? Um, that there is room for us to try to, to, to fight for that. Yeah, I just want to add real quick that, you know, I think the ideological factional struggles within DSA are kind of one step removed from a lot of, a lot of the members of DSA. Um, I would say most members of DSA probably have no idea what's going on factionally and don't really care. They just kind of, if they're active, just want to do work on the ground and activism in their chapters, um, which is which is good to an extent. But I, I do think, you know, it's not just um, petty ideological squabbling, right? It's it's real, um, real practical uh, uh, debates on strategy and what and how we're going to how and what we're going to do as socialists. Um, so, you know, there's also, I, I neglected to mention the various, you know, left-wing formations that have recently grouped around an online publication called Partisan, which includes, um, in San Francisco, there's a group called Red Star, which is, um, you know, vaguely, you know, Leninist, I would say. Um, there's Emerge in New York City, which I don't really know how to describe them. I guess they're maybe, um, influenced by, you know, autonomous politics. Um, and base building, as is um, the Communist Caucus, which I believe is national, but mostly in in the West Coast. Um, so you know that's that's a very basic rundown of all the all the major factions. You have a whole you know a whole constant whole ecosystem of uh, magazines, of caucuses, of grouplets, of factions, and what have you. That is a uh, you know healthy uh situation to be in you know and your your amendment to you know um that you've put forward apart your first amendment before you slay you know basically enshrines that that can always be the case you know you can always have this uh political culture where um you know people can dissent and argue with each other and work with like-minded people and what have you and that's that's yeah. a positive as well that's a strength that's a real strength that 
you see in the DSA that maybe you didn't necessarily see in some of the alignment, um, realignment uh, processes that um, we've had over this side. You know, mm -hmm. we certainly didn't see it momentum. You know, they had to build all the infrastructure beforehand and then now it's all gone basically. Um, so you, you can see that, you know, there's a more of a longevity, hopefully to, to DSA with such a culture. Um, yeah, I think the open culture of, of being able to, um, you know, voice dissent it is a good thing, but it's also indicative that um, there is no unity in DSA right now. Like, uh, I think anytime a party has factions, it's kind of indicative of a, of a larger crisis. Um, and I do think that eventually, like, the contradictions are going to have to come to a head. You know, the I also forgot to to mention that the the former Harringtonites, you know, have banded together with the um, you know, right wing of the younger DSA members to form what's called um, Socialist Majority Caucus. And they're the ones who were kind of pushing the Biden thing. Um, they're the ones who want to, uh, you know, take over the Democratic parties and, 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 and have a more coalitionist approach. Um, so I, I do think the various contradictions between, you know, DSA's stated strategy of the dirty break and the actual practical politics are eventually going to have to come to a head. And, and it and it can't just continue on um, vaguely as it has been forever. Right. right. One thing that, that you point out uh, is that, you know, Chris, is that we do have many different magazines, right, that have started. And when you look back at Cosmonaut's mission statement from three years ago, we, you know, we wrote uh, that Cosmonaut should be one, uh, Cosmonaut is one of what should be many left-wing magazines, right? And uh, since then, in the last three years, you've had tons of journals, you know, associated with DSA that have started. And, and that is something that, you know, <clears throat> it strikes me as very op optimistic, you know, and, and I feel emboldened that, that there will be more debate, that there will be more, you know, uh, more attempts to try to uh, come together to have a, a common vision, you know, because I think it's, you know, it's somewhat inevitable uh, for people to drift towards each, towards each other if they have a vaguely, you know, if they're within the same organization and they have a vaguely same goal, right? I, I have hope that that is um, something that will come about. Yeah, I mean, that was, you know, one of the hopes that we have as well is that, you know, we, we too would be part of a, a larger, a larger body, you know, uh, you know, a future party kind of collective collection of uh, different magazines, different groupings and what have you. Um, and that's one of the things that we we decided from the, the get go was to try not to replicate all the other work that other magazines are doing. And um, you can see with, with you guys in Cosmonaut as well that that's, you know, you're not reporting on every single strike, every single um, dispute in a workplace, every single organizing drive, you know, you're aiming for, you know, analysis and discussion on things that you know other people may not be doing but but there's plenty of good stuff out there you know um on strikes and what have you um so i think in that sense we're slightly you know another similarity be, be, between ourselves i mean i'd like to move on to the new platform now you've kind of hit, kind of got to it already um what, one of the things i wanted to ask you is I mean, why does the DSA need a platform? 
you know, well, you know, it's got this far, it's got almost 100,000 members, you know, there's going to be a lot of people on the US left, you know, quite happy with the way things are. And they're going to say to you, but comrades, why? Why do this now? Why start drawing um, lines in the sand where some people who are with us now may not be able to come along with us and what have you? I mean, these are the arguments that, um, you know, come up time and time again in, in these kind of struggles. And I just, just wondering where, where, what you guys think. I mean, currently, uh, a very popular criticism that all kinds of people have in DSA, right, is that anyone can join DSA, almost anyone can really join, and there are hardly any requirements to join. Now, these are not arguments made by people who want to build a sect, right, uh, that prove every aspect of your life <laughs> before you join. But there does need to be a kind of a, a, a foundational perspective and uh, a, a, a political strategy that should be uh, clearly laid out for people if they want to join. And that is a strategy that is missing, that is needed, that is, you know, that is, people want that, you know, because um, with, without a clear strategy, you know, people are left to their own devices, right? And, and their own conceptions, their own political conceptions of how to get to socialism. Um, if they even want that, right? Um, so I would I would argue that the main argument, the main reason why we need a program is because you know you need to clearly lay out that we're all pulling on one string. That there's that there's also you know a feeling of of optimism, and and that there's a feeling of of goals that we can actually accomplish that are clearly laid out. Yeah. Um... I just want to add that, you know, in 2017, DSA actually adopted a resolution that said we're going to write a platform. And um, I think most of the ideologically active, you know, people who are in, um, involved in the, uh, you know, factional politics of the national DSA probably um, accept the need for a platform. And I'd say most people are on board for that. Um, but one popular criticism I've seen since the first draft came out, and it's only been, you know, a day and a half since the first draft came out. Um, but one is that, you know, and this is a right wing critique that is maybe trying to mask itself as a left wing critique, as we often see on the left. Um, people say, oh, this is a utopian laundry list. What we need is a, an actionable, you know, steps to get there and, and priorities of what are our priorities? We need to focus, like our platform should be what DSA is already doing, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and I, I would think, no, we need a utopian vision for the working class coming to power um, in the United States. And that's what a platform is for. It's what steps would need to be taken for the working class to come to power. What would we do? If there was a, you know, if the working class became the ruling class, how would that happen? Um, so, and I, I think the, you know, I've been on the, the committee that drafted um, the platform. I've been working hard on it for months. And I, I think that what we have, you know, accomplishes that. Um, it's a little jumbled. It's, you know, definitely needs a lot more editing. I think it's a little too long. I, I would like to see it, you know, basically a third the size as it is now, but I really doubt that's going to happen during the amendment process. It's probably only going to get longer. Um, and you can easily tell it was written by a committee, but 
you know, like I said earlier, we're in the infancy of our movement. And um, I'm really proud of the stuff laid out on the platform. And I think it does um, have a revolutionary view, you know, at the very beginning section, at the end of the first section on, you know, democratic reforms, we call for um, replacing the US Constitution, the, the bourgeois rule of law, which is at the heart of, you know, what revolution means. Um, you know, of course, there are issues with it that I think could be better. I, I don't, like Alex mentioned earlier, I don't really like the division between, you know, short, medium and long term demands. Um, because I, I think that kind of prescribes like a tactical view, like we don't know exactly what kind of um, struggles are going to be possible to win when. Um, and I think the the goal for adding a, you know, short term view was to, um, you know, make it palatable to the people who want to see, you know, a more pragmatic um, priority action program type of thing. Um, but, you know, that's something that I'm willing to concede for the overall um, benefit of having a platform that calls for a revolution. Yeah, I mean, there's, there's a, I mean, I read it last night and there's, there's, so, there's a, so much good stuff it's in there, you know, it is jumbled up. It is a bit of a scattergun approach. Um, so you can definitely, obviously, as you say, you can definitely tell it's been written by committee. Um, you know, it's, uh, you know, the democracy, you know, the democracy section with the constitutional convention, you know, probably the strongest part of it. Um, you know, it's really, really solid that you managed to get that in and probably against quite a lot of uh, comrades who were hesitant to say those kind of things. You know, even in 2021, um, one, one of the things I've thought about the media or the, you know, the short term goals is that, you know, it's going to make the, the platform out of date very quickly. You know, um, we, we, we in Britain, well, almost all communist parties have done this. Official communist parties have done this since the 40s and 50s. It's you that you put in, uh, you know, things that are going on in the immediate struggle, your immediate demands. And then two years later, you're having to redraft your your program because what you wrote two years ago is now out of date. Um, whilst it does um, obviously, you know, fend off some of the criticisms from comrades who just want an action program, and you are right, it is it is a it is a a right wing viewpoint in the workers' movement, you know, clothing itself as like a you know workerist left wing um, consideration. Um, but I mean, I can see that you know two, three years down the line, you're going to be at another convention where your, you know, short-term goals make your national platform out of date. Um, but again, I mean, there, there was some things that maybe I could ask you about as well. I mean, you know, you've got abolition of the standing army, but not its replacement with the arming of the people. And I know that's a big issue in the United States, you know, gun violence and, you know, you know, the militias that are uh, running, running around in the States. Um, you know, got nothing on freedom of speech and freedom of association, which, you know, one of the best parts of the, you know, the American Constitution is the First Amendment. And, uh, and, the, and the, the DSA, you know, you'd think is, you know, holding that radical uh, Republican um, tradition as part of the socialist movement, you know, going all the way back, as you say, to the, you know, Socialist Party of America and what have you, you know, that seems to be missing as well. I mean, what kind of process and what do you think is going to happen in the next few months in the run up to, to your August convention that where you're able to, you know, get some of these things corrected or, you know, get out some of the things that will make you out of dates pretty much straight away. 
Right. Um, maybe I'll, I'll take this and then Alex, I just saw that you put in the chat that you wanted to respond to. Um, I don't know if you just sent that or if that was before. Um, but yeah, as far as the, you know, the abolition of the standing army plank, I personally added that in there. Um, and I, I could have written about its replacement with the people's militia, but I thought it would be more appropriate to introduce that as an amendment from our caucus um, so that we could really um, lay out why we believe that. Um, and so that, you know, people could vote on it really. Um, because I did think that might be contentious. Um, and I just thought it was more proper to go through that, that mechanism. As far as, um, you know, the, the freedom of speech thing, I think there was, I think there was like kind of an attitude that, you know, I actually didn't bring this up, but if, if you look at the labor section, it does call for um, something similar um, about, you know, right to assembly, et cetera, which is currently being, you know, not upheld um, in, you know, the world of labor. I think there was an idea that, you know, oh, these, these things are already, you know, available in the US and we don't need to focus on them. But, you know, you're right, it, it is an issue for, for the left, you know, the question of freedom of speech and what that means. It's a very contentious issue, when, especially, you know, in regards to, does it apply when we're trying to de-platform de fascists, et cetera? So um, I, I would like to see a little bit more about, you know, there's at the end of the demo democratic section, there's, it, we call for the cooperative commonwealth or the socialist republic. Um, I did argue for adding a more, a, a bigger description of what that would look like, um, you know, and that would include, you know, freedom of absolute freedom of speech assembly um, and a dem and a democratic civil society, really, basically just a description of a democratic civil society. Um, that That's probably lacking, um, but I do think it's kind of a given in DSA. One thing, one thing that is good about DSA politics, you know, is that, you know, the idea of democratic socialism, they, they, they do take the democratic part seriously. And I think that's, as orthodox Marxists, that's something that was missing in the Marxist left. Um, explicitly, you know, there was kind of an economism of, you know, we'll just relegate political questions and, and questions of democracy to, to the, the bourgeois democratic revolution, right? But as orthodox Marxists, we know that uh, bourgeois society is not democratic. The liberal constitution, the liberal constitutional states are not democratic. So I, that, I would be in favor of um, expanding that section about, you know, uh, a democratic civil society in the socialist republic. Um, you know, I don't know if that'll end up happening or not. Um, as far as how I see the amendment process um, going forth, um, you know, I, it's really hard to predict. You know, I thought there would be a lot of like minor squabbling over particular planks online, like on Twitter and, and, and all over the place and on the DSA discussion forums. But I really haven't seen much. It's mo mostly like, you know, overall ideas about what the platform should be um, that people are kind of discussing. And, and so far, I've, I've really only seen mostly productive discussion. So I'll, I'll be really interested, interested to see what uh, amendments people put forward. Um, but regardless of, you know, what ends up being the final draft, it's my sincere hope that at the convention, after all the amendments are voted on, that the, you know, this may be utopian hope, but I, I'm really hoping that the, the delegates um, approve the platform unanimously, because I think that would be a huge um, uh, symbol of the the unity of the socialist movement right now and the um and be kind of you know a threat to our class enemies you know 
look at this thing we just did. We, I think it's really impressive for, a, for an organization this large to do something like that. So, you know, that's probably unrealistic, but I'm going to be advocating that, you know, everyone vote for it, regardless of their differences, because we do have this um, amendment that we put forward that explicitly recognizes the, um, the right for uh, organizing for changes within the platform, um, but, you know, accepting it as the movement's overall aims. No, you're, you're absolutely right. It is, it is impressive to be in that situation. We're, we're, we're very envious of you. Um, before we came on air, me and uh, Ed were talking about the Socialist Alliance and the missed opportunities that we've had over the last 20 years to, to do something even, you know, on a much school, smaller scale, but, you know, in terms of, uh, you know, getting to the point where you are at the moment where you're having that, you know, really important debate over what is a programme, why do we need it? You know what goes into it you know you know you know we can only look from afar and say you know this is this is where we would want to be um so yeah it is it is it is really impressive where, where you guys are at the moment right well you know practically we also have you know this opportunist opportunistic uh electoral strategy and you know we have this um monolithic party system of two bourgeois parties in, in here. So, we, you know, there are things I think the US left is definitely envious of the British left for, um, which maybe it shouldn't be. I don't know. Um, we'll swap you our Labour Party for your DSA. How does that sound? <laughs> I think many people in DSA would take that swap. I, I wouldn't. Yeah, talking about parties and 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 what a program means earlier, right? Parker responded that uh, that uh, we have to look at the fact that the working class wants to become the ruling class in society, right? Um, the question of a party in DSA on the left is actually quite controversial, right? There's not uh, unanimity about whether or not we should even have a party. Um, and, I, and I would argue, right, that, uh, that the working class needs a vehicle. The working class needs an apparatus if it does actually want to govern in the future, because it's not going to happen spontaneously. And if when it has happened spontaneously in the past where revolutions become absolutely necessary in certain moments in history and places, uh, it has not worked. Spontaneity has not worked, right? Um, and, you know, uh, should we have many parties? Should we, should we have five, six, many parties? You know, uh, I mean, the fact is that the working class needs unity as well, right? Unity is strength. And if multiple parties could um, have unity in action, theoretically, sure, uh, you know, but then you also have to look at the, the fact that, um, that, uh, that working class parties also need finances, they need resources, they need to organize educational institutions and, 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 and courses and so on, right? And, and they need, and so the more unity you have, the less you're duplicating efforts, right? And, and the more effective you can actually be at fighting for the working class, right? And uh, that, that is kind of uh, in line of Parker's answer as well on why we need a program. Yeah, I mean, here, here in the UK, I mean, you know, to, to touch on the Labour Party, I mean, it's a source of endless frustration for anyone who's a member of it, really, uh, or anyone who's a, a socialist member of it, definitely. Um, but even despite that, and, and even despite how, how politically useless it is, 99% of the time, 
um, the ruling class would love to liquidate it, right? Or, or, or at least liquidate it and, and neuter it as a, a, a as an independent uh, expression of working class politics. You know, they would love uh, to have it basically uh, cut off its ties with the, the trade unions um, or at least to subjugate them so that they have no influence within the party. Um, and uh, and really, the, the ruling class, what, what it would really like is to essentially turn it into a British version of, of, of the Democratic Party in the States, you know, and, and integrate it into the state structure um, and, and do all of those things. Um, I mean, they're basically there already with it doing that, aren't they? I mean, well, it, 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 just to say well, that it's I mean, this independent is... political expression is... Is a, is a massive stretch, isn't it? I mean, it, it is it is the policeman in the workers' movement, isn't it? Well, it. I mean, it's it's both. It's it's got that contradictory role. You know, you, you it, it is both. Um, you, you can't get away from the fact that, you know, as we've seen, working class politics time and again seems to, uh, when it experiences an upsurge, it seems to go into the Labour Party and and. That that's not uh, that's not a reason to identify ourselves with it or, or hold any uh, rose tinted view of it, but it's uh, it, it's something that has to be reckoned with and understood uh, and potentially fought. You know, if if we come to the conclusion that this is actually a, a break on on the movement and and a break on the development of socialist politics in in the UK, then we'll have to fight against it. We can't do that without first understanding it and and uh, and coming to terms with it, which is something that. The left in the UK has singularly failed to do right. I mean, you know, the, the, this question of the party, um, no, you, you know, never really has the socialist left uh, in the UK come to terms uh, and and come out with a a clear vision of a mass socialist party. Uh, and and part of the reason for that is the Labour Party already exists, and and the idea of having two parties simultaneously or or to organize a communist party within the labor party which is a perfectly kind of viable idea in principle but it, it it's uh it's a stretch too far for most socialists and so you know because it's always been a stretch too far the idea that we should have an organization based on firm socialist principles uh we we just end up in the parlous situation we're in right now which is uh, that socialists are basically nowhere. There's no significant organisation of socialists within the Labour Party or, or anywhere else um, because the people don't understand the need for one. Um, people think that socialism will just kind of develop by by osmosis uh, within the workers' movement, which is of course not uh, what happens at all. Uh, and you know, to <laughs> to bring to bring to an end a very long-winded diatribe, I think this is what makes this platform and this process of development within DSA uh, and, you know, the the surge in membership in recent years that's given rise to it and made it possible, I think that's what makes it so impressive. And that's where we would like to be, uh, or at least a staging post along the way of where we would like to be. Yeah, well, well, that's good to hear. I mean, you know, I think it's kind of almost a, a happy circumstance of history that, you know, um, that there was kind of a re revitalized left in both the US and um, Britain um, just because of the charisma of a few, you know, socialist individuals, even if they were reformists, you know, with Bernie Sanders and Jeremy Corbyn. I mean, I think that is the effect that um, political struggle can have is, you know, bring you, uh, inspire a mass audience in a way that, you know, the, the base building thing can't do on such a huge scale. Um, 
And, you know, I think just to, just to go back of, you know, some perspective of, of the UK, I mean, I was just watching this video of Tony Benn um, in maybe the, the first Gulf War. He was giving a speech against the first Gulf War, which was going around Twitter. And I, I retweeted it from the Marxist Unity account. And I was like, you know, this is what it means to be a tribune of the people. Even though Tony Benn's, um, you know, own politics were of, you know, and the official labor left is the politics of, um, you know, the next labor government is, is our goal. Um, I think that, you know, there is, you, you have more of a history of that, you know, tribunes of the people outlook that, you know, we never saw in the U.S. until Bernie Sanders, really. And um, despite the, despite the overall, what I would call bad strategy for the workers movement on the, um, the Corbins and the, the Bernies of the world, um, it is a happy accident that they existed just as charismatic individuals and kind of almost single-handedly revived the socialist movements um, that, that we see today. So, Alexander, what you were saying in, in the chat, you know, about the trade unionism, about being a threat to the bourgeoisie and what have you, I mean, yes and no. I mean, to a large extent, the trade unions, you know, do represent a threat to capital. But at the same time, there's a dual function, isn't there, that's, that happens not just in Britain, but, you know, in, in, in most countries where the trade unions become NGO-ified, they're, uh, you know, really um, part of the control uh, mechanisms, you know, stop anything getting too far out of hand. But when it comes to the Labour Party, it is the crucial, it is the crucial factor here. The trade unions are the crucial factor because they're seen as the, the embodiment of the workers' movement. Um, and therefore, you know, their link with the, the Labour Party still gives it, um, for, for many comrades, that, that working class base um, as a reflection of the working class base of the Labour Party. To the extent that that is still true, I think is, 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 is questionable when I think the way Ed describes it as, um, you know, sometimes it goes through changes, um, you know, when there's an upsurge in class struggle or protest movements or, you know, odd, odd occasions where Jeremy Corbyn magically becomes leader of the Labour Party out of nowhere, you know, you know, the, the vehicle for, 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 for socialist advance or at least for socialist movements gets uh, drawn into and sucked into the Labour Party um, for better or worse, you know. Um, so it has to be contended with on, on, that, on that basis. I guess in the States, you, you don't quite have that yet. What I was interested by is um, Eric Blanc's recent um, article in Jacobin, where he explicitly says the DSA should aim for, you know, um, a, you know, a Labour approach based on how the Labour Party in Britain was formed, which is taking a long time through uh, the Democrats or for, for here it was the Liberals, you know, getting those people elected and what have you um, and building up through that way until you're, you know, ready to, to make a dirty break or a break of any kind, you know. Um, yeah, I, that, that article frustrated me. <laughs> yeah. I have a great respect for Comrade Blanc, despite my disagreements with him. But I, I think his politics four years ago was very similar to ours now. Right, um, it was. And he's he. It seems like he's uh, moved moved a little bit. But there's an older article up on John Riddell's blog by Eric Blanc. Um, that's a piece by Karl Kautsky, 
um, called uh, uh, class party. Uh, I forget is the class or class parties or a socialist sex or something like that. Yeah. And Eric wrote a very brilliant introduction to it, um, where basically it was over the the question of whether to whether or not to um, let the British Labour Party into the Second International. Um, at the same time, there was the um, the Hindeman party, who was that the British Socialist Party? Yeah, the Heinemann, um, Heinemann so, yeah. Social Democratic Federation. Social Democratic Federation. Federation. Yeah. That was yeah. before the British Socialist Party. Okay. So, yeah, the SDF was basically like a sectarian socialist group, right? They were kind of like the trots of their day, um, but, you know, with the politics of the Second International. Um, and they were kind of a small set, although compared to now, they were much bigger, right? But, you know, this was Kowski arguing that, no, we don't need a. Um, a sect like that, and we don't need just a trade union um, federation party that doesn't uh, have a socialist program. We need the combination of them. You know, we need the, the Marxist program with the labor movement together. And, um, you know, I think that a lot of the conception in DSA for what kind of party is something like the Labor Party, particularly because um, a lot of DSA members were envious of the situation with Jeremy Corbyn. Um, even though we had Bernie, it was like, you know, well, they have an actual Labor Party, you know, we just have the Democrats. Um, I think that, you know, the dirty break, so to speak, is um, theoretically viable. I'm not opposed to it. But the, the key question is that, you know, the people we put up, they have to be under the socialist program, and they have to reject the discipline of the Democratic Party, whether or not they um, go on their ballot lines, which is something that we're going to have to move past too, because you know, when you run on the Democratic ballot line for 90% of the populace that associates you with the Democrats. Um, but I do think our aim has to be for turning DSA into that party, having our, our platform, our program be the program of the future um, Socialist Workers Party. And that's, you know, I would, I would say that the British Labour Party was a result of the failure of the merger formula that um, Kautsky talks about that I brought up earlier, right? Um, that a, a success in the merger formula would be, um, like Kautsky said in that article, um, the class sex or parties, um, the, the, the merger of the working class um, with its expression in the trade unions with the socialist program and the transformation of both sides into a higher unity. So I think we need to have our eye on the ball for that sort of thing. And even if that makes us a minority, um, our view is that the role of politics is to be agitational, to be tribunes, to raise the, the expectations of the class, like Bernie did, you know, like he made millions of people demand, you know, socializing the entire um, uh, pharmaceutical and uh, healthcare industry, which would, would be a huge fucking change in the the way that labor and capital uh the, the class dynamics in, in the united states you know that's not just like a, a minor change um i think you know bernie sanders himself has had kind of a warbling strategy of you know he he's actually elected as a senator from vermont on an independent ballot line which is great but he caucuses with the democrats you know it's kind of almost the reverse of what we want which is you know okay use whatever ballot line uh, I think we prefer independent, um, but the key question is, do you join the Democratic Party in Congress and accept their, their, their discipline in, in the caucus? Um, so I, th I think Bernie's goal is more similar to the old Harringtonite tradition of, you know, 
making the Democratic Party a you know social democratic labor party. Um, I think he personally believes in socialism. I think he thinks that you know once we have social democracy, we can push forward from there. But that wasn't on his um, that wasn't on his immediate political platform. So I think that's the role of the DSA is to actually have a platform for the working class coming to power, for the dictatorship of the proletariat, or as we say in the um, in the platform itself, the language is the cooperative commonwealth, uh, the democratic socialist republic. Yeah, um, I, I mean, I think the, the, the point about how things turned out in Britain, you know, with the, the failure of, of the the Marxist forces in Britain, such as they were to, to merge with quite a, a, a strong and powerful trade union movement uh, effectively is, you know, is, is a point that, that echoes one that's that's in my article for Prometheus. And yeah, while while I too have, have a lot of time for Eric Blanc, I kind of wish that he'd read my article before writing his, um, because I think uh, I, I think one of the key lessons of history is that the you know this formulation of uh, of of the Labour Party uh, being not you know a merger of socialism and the workers' movement, but uh, instead an alliance between socialists and the reformist trade union leadership was not an accident. Uh, really, it was a it was deliberate design, uh, and and Keir Hardy who founded the Labour Party d deliberately intended it that way and, you know, came up with the phrase the Labour Alliance to describe it. And of course, you know, this is what we're saddled with today. Um, and, and so I think it would just be really crucial to learn some of those lessons, because while there may be people who openly advocate for that, it would be a tragedy if uh, people slipped into that accidentally without understanding uh, the repercussions of, of heading down one path uh, rather than another when it comes to what sort of party we need. Um, finally, I think uh, I, I thought it was just worth mentioning here in relation to Tribunes of the People uh, and, and how periodically the, uh, the the balance of political forces will shift and unexpected developments will happen uh, and, and history will produce a, a Bernie Sanders or a Jeremy Corbyn. And even on a smaller scale, you know, uh, people who come to office uh, as a result of, or, or you know riding the crest of the, those waves you know like AOC in the states we have some very very good actually parliamentarians in the UK who are sort of Corbyn supporters Zara Sultana is a name who springs to mind and and you know who make very effective use of, of parliament as a platform um, but of course what they can find uh, unfortunately is that you know when the movement ebbs rather than flows beneath their feet uh, that you know that they're, they're disconnected they're raising the expectations of the working class but unfortunately what they're not doing is providing a, a, a channel and an inf infrastructure to you know to to uh, give give effect to those expectations which I think what's so crucial and, and so durable institutions of the working class of the socialist movement I think is really the key it's what we're lacking here and it's what you're you're building in the states which is what's so positive I think to an extent, you know, uh, we have it easier than you guys because we don't have the Labour Party that as a hurdle to have to overcome right? or to compete with, really, you know, in a, in a certain sense. Um, yeah, I actually knew Eric Blanc uh, many years ago, and he definitely shifted to, uh, you know, to the right. Um, and, and his conception of the dirty break, right, as, as Parker formulated, is, is one that we're definitely very opposed to. 
and, and have a different view on. We very much liked his uh, Red for Ed stuff. You know, his uh, Red State Revolt book, you know, really impressive. You know, the, the work that he's doing now, he's translating work, you know, we're very much looking forward to, to reading all of that. Yeah, I mean, he's he's done a lot of the historical work that, um, you know, people in DSA weren't doing, uh, you know, and his, his dirty, he was the one who came up with the dirty break idea, you know, and I think theoretically, it's, it's somewhat sound, it's just we have to fill in the details and actually do it, we have to emphasize the break section. Um, you know, it, he has an article on the what was called the, um, the, the nonpartisan league and the and the farmer labor party in a couple states mm. in the Midwest. I mean, it's been a couple of years since I read this, but basically they were able to have a left wing third party in in the 1930s in uh, Wisconsin and Michigan. I, I forget where. It's been a while since I read this, but you know, he his um, conception of the dirty break was you know uh, historically based on that. And you know, I, uh, I I applaud a lot of the work he does. I just I I think that you know we have to take the break part seriously, and we have to um, adopt the attitude towards electoral politics that um, Marxism had in the uh, you know between uh, Marx's time in the first international and when uh, when the Bolsheviks came to power. I think they were fundamentally correct about um, you know not accepting, um, you know, not going into coalition with uh, bourgeois parties, uh, except under the um, condition that you can fulfill the minimum program, right? That's what minimum means. It doesn't mean immediate practical demands. It means the uh, minimum basis for the working class to come to power. Um, and I think that's, you know, when people talk about the Erfurt program and, and talk about the Second International, they there's this completely wrong historical view, which, you know, uh, ben Lewis gets into in that book, and I'm sure he, I, I listened to the episode you guys did with him, but I'm sure he got into, into that there, um, that, you know, there's this conception both on the left and in academia that the Erfurt program was a um, step away from revolutionary socialism, that it was a reformist program. Just read the thing. It's absolutely untrue. It's a program for the working class to come to, it's a program for the dictatorship of the proletariat in the, um, in the line of um, the program that Marx wrote for the French Workers' Party. And um, it's easily understandable by a mass base. Um, another, another one that we took influence from was the 1912 Socialist Party of America platform that was written in the, um, in the shadow of Erfurt. Um, and, and I think that this is why the, the question of the minimum program is key. You know, if you don't wanna call it the minimum program, then don't, I, I'm fine with calling it just, you know, the socialist platform or, or you know, if you wanna call it a transitional program, which is, you know, very theoretically muddy, but you know, whatever. The, the point is that uh, it's a program for the working class to come to power and that its completion in full would mean that the class is in power. Um, so that was kind of, a, I, I kind of got uh, distracted there and, and, and got a little excited talking about <laughs> these historical debates. Um, but, you know, the point is that we, we have a real vision for, um, you know, becoming the working class becoming the ruling class, even if it seems like, uh, you know, that's not on the horizon right now, we have to clearly state that that's our aims. Even if it seems totally utopian and unachievable, we have to achieve the impossible because there's no other alternative, right? It's socialism or barbarism. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you you know, we need to rewin and relearn those those lessons, you know, to build an independent 
you know, political culture, political life, political party, you know, um, all of that, you know, that's not going to, you know, just come out of AOC or Bernie or whoever. It's got to be, you know, fought for. And, um, you know, you guys taking that fight forward with the, with the slates, with the Marxist unity slaters, you know, I think whilst you, you recognise that you're very small and what have you, I think you can see in the platform that even, you know, by having you on that drafting committee, Parker, you can see things starting to, to get in there, you know, the Democratic Republic, you know, or, you know, the abolition of the standing army and what have you, you know, that you can see that there's a, a genuine discussion and fight for that independent line. And, um, you know, it's really, you know, more, you know, kudos to you guys for, you know, organizing and getting, uh, you know, neck deep into that fight. Right. Yeah. Just, just, just want to say that both of those things, you know, were not controversial when I added them to the platform. You know, I think, you know, it, people are surprised, especially people from the sectarian left are surprised when, when DSA actually formalizes its positions. Like uh, there was a guy on the international committee who tweeted out yesterday that, you know, all these, you know, sectarian leftists are surprised when we make these statements on, you know, our positions towards the rest of the world. But we're just formalizing the positions that DSA members do do have. Um, and I think in the most part, it's pretty good politically. It's just strategically we need to um, get into shape. Um, so I, I, I do think that, you know, most socialists in DSA want revolution. They want the working class in charge of society. Um, you know, it's it's just that we need to align that goal with a strategy for getting there. So I, uh, I really advocate, you know, the far left not be sectarian towards DSA, even when it does um, in practice become opportunistic because DSA is a democratic organization and you do have the ability to organize for your vision within it. Um, right. So despite right. all the problems, which there are myriad, um, I think it's where the struggle is. And I just, you know, I, I know I've harped on that a couple of times, but um, you know, it's, it's, it's where we need to be right now. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You, you are in the right place, definitely fighting the right fight at the right time. Um, but, I, you know, I think we're going to kind of draw it to a close now because we've been uh, almost two hours, which is great. And it hasn't seemed like two hours. So that's always a good sign. Uh, but I do have one important, really important question to ask you. Um, is the Marxist unity slate the uh, Mike McNair faction? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I mean, just look on our uh, on our website, marxistunity.com. There's a foundational reading list there, and Marx uh, McNair is definitely the author that appears the most. I mean, there's articles by all, almost all the members of Marxist Unity on there. Um, but you know, the the vision that you know, Mc, not only McNair, but the entire um, CPGB Provisional Central Committee, uh, the entire work, weekly worker people have have been um, uh, you know promoting for the last uh, several decades in obscurity, sort of, um, has definitely, uh, always been a uniting factor for the, the Marxist unity people. Um, you know, I, I want to ward off accusations that were like, you know, agents of the CPGB in, in DSA. Um, no, actually we had to like, you know, contact them and be like, Hey, we like your stuff, you know, and they're like invited me and Jonah to speak on, you know, one of the, the, um, 
communist uh, forum uh, meetings. But, you know, other than that, you know, our only contact with them is just, you know, online, you know, messaging each other and forming online friendships um, and having been on our podcast and stuff. Um, but yeah, it's just that they've influenced us politically. Um, we think they're basically right about a lot of stuff about the main questions. And, um, you know, we're not unique in that uh, entirely because I know, um, you know, Bhaskar Sankara has been influenced by revolutionary strategy as well a long time ago, even if I think he doesn't necessarily hold those politics exactly anymore. He did uh, make a joke on Twitter recently. I, man, I brought up Twitter too much. That's the problem with the left today is that we're too, too dependent on the online world. But anyway, he made a joke about, um, you know, Weekly Worker being the greatest publication of the, of the, of the left. So I thought that was funny to see. Um, but yeah, I think we are the group that's most explicitly influenced by the, the strategy laid out in McNair's book, Revolutionary Strategy, for sure. Um, and that's definitely intentional. No, I mean, and to be fair to those guys, it's uh, high time they got a good hearing in, in the States, you know, and that people actually <laughs> yeah. read what they were saying instead of just what other people were, were saying about them. So, well, it's almost, it's almost perfect because, you know, this idea of democratic socialism fits really well with, um, you know, the orthodox Marxism, um, because there is that emphasis on uh, the, the democratic aspects of the socialist movement without being, you know, anti-communist. Um, so I know that every question you guys have asked me, I've just gone on and on and ranted too much, you know, and that's why it's two hours. So I apologize to you guys, <laughs> to all the listeners, but I think it's important. And it's, it's been a great conversation and I felt um, really lucky to be, be on here talking to you guys and building these international connections. So thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks very much, both of you, for coming on. Uh, yeah, really appreciate it. Uh, you know, and obviously best of luck uh, with, with the Marxist Unity slide um is there a deadline is it is is the uh you know a day when we'll know how how you'll how you've done yeah after the convention i suppose um uh we have already you know the first step is done we've collected enough signatures to um submit our resolutions but the next step is to have you know there's always a million resolutions that get sent in and so how they uh bring them about is you know, delegate, when delegates are elected, they'll vote on their top 10 favorites or something like that. So we have to basically convince, uh, you know, our, for one, our supporters to run as delegates and two, everyone who runs as delegates that, you know, our uh, uh, slate of uh, proposals is worth uh, putting in your top 10. Um, so the step is to build alliance with, build, build alliances with other factions and get them to, you know, endorse our proposals and to cross endorse theirs. Um, and I think there is a significant uh, chance of, you know, having that debate on, on the floor of the Zoom convention as it's going to be on Zoom this time. Um, but yeah, we really hope that we can get these resolutions to the floor and at least have the debate, if not, um, if not, you know, pass it this year, at least host the debate, um, make the socialist movement uh, consider these questions. Um, and if, and if we lose, then, you know, that's all right. We can still organize to pass these next time around. Um, it's not like, you know, if we lose, we're going to be completely demoralized and DSA never has a chance of, of doing this. So I, I really want to um, say that now because, you know, I don't want our supporters to be demoralized and, and people to go, oh, DSA isn't worth it, blah, blah, blah. It's like, just, just to harp on again, this is um, a rare opportunity that, you know, the kind of, uh, Hegelian uh, 
movement of history has opened up for us and we have to use it um, with everything we have. We, we have to go for it. Excellent. Yeah, well, we'll, we'll be following uh, at Marxist Unity DSA on Twitter for updates uh, and, and everyone else should as well. Yeah, I mean, just thank you guys for obviously coming on and chatting to us. Um, you know, we wish you all the luck, you know, in, in the fight that you've undertaken in Yellen. You know, and you're right, you know, it's not a Fred Durst, Limp Bizkit, My Way or the Highway kind of, you know, moment in the, in the DSA. You know, it's a, you know, it's a long haul, it's a long fight. So, you know, um, thank you very much for coming to explain to us what's actually going on in the DSA and, you know, what you guys are fighting for right now. Great. Yeah, great conversation. Thank you for having us.